The clock called me back to reality. And so now uh, we are still looking at these first three chapters. And I want to come back and just summarize chapter one again. Hosea had three children that are recorded here for us. The first one was a child, uh, a, a boy, and he was a child that was his and Gomer's child. And they named him Jezreel, which means shattered. And God said, that's the name for that child. Then they had a daughter, and they called her, verse 6, God said, call her no mercy. No mercy. What a name for a loving parent to have to give a child. No mercy. Come here, no mercy, let me talk to you. No mercy, don't do that. They had a third child. And this daughter, by the way, it does not say was Hosea's child. Gomer had been unfaithful. And then we find that there was a third child. She bore a son this time. And God said, I want you to give a name to this son, and this son's name is not my people. Not my people. And God said, there's a message in this, in both of these names, in no mercy and in not my people, and that is that, that I will have no mercy, God said, first on the people of Israel, because you have been utterly unfaithful to me, just as Gomer has been utterly unfaithful to Hosea. And there's a time of no mercy. And then, when he said, you are not my people, God is preparing to say to them, you are not going to continue in this relationship with me. I am going to separate myself from you because you have been utterly unfaithful to me. Just as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea. So that's the background. That's chapter one. Three children, three strange names, very sad names given to their children. Chapter 2, God turns his attention to the nation of Israel. He said, now here's this family. Here's this family fragmenting, falling apart before your eyes. And now, nation of Israel, I have a message for you. I want you to hear what I have to say to you. And so in chapter 2, God says, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. The opposite of the names of these two children. He wants to remind them. He wants to remind them. Now, I think if I were to sum up chapter 2 and all the the messages that God has for us, it's this first point, and that is that you wound the heart of God, you and I wound the heart of God when we are unfaithful to him. This is a strong message for the United States of America in this season. We need to pay close attention to the message of Hosea. You wound the heart of God when you are unfaithful to him. Now in chapter 2, Hosea begins to record God's four accusations against the people of Israel. A reminder here, a geographical reminder, a political reminder. The nation of Israel at this time was divided into two kingdoms. A northern kingdom called Israel, a southern kingdom called Judah. All of the kings of the northern kingdom were unfaithful to God. They all worshipped idols, every last one of them. Most of the kings of Judah were faithful. The message of Hosea comes to the northern kingdom with a strong warning to Judah, watch out. But the immediate message is to the northern kingdom of Israel. God is speaking to them. And so he begins in chapter 2 to lay out four accusations that he has for them. This is a courtroom pleading to an adulterous people. And he starts out with a reminder. Say to one another, you are 
my people. You are. You really are. And say to your sisters, you have received mercy. You really have received mercy. Don't forget it. Don't forget it ever for a moment. Israel had placed their hope in other gods. And God was going to turn his attention to them, to that matter. God is saying the same thing to this generation of Christians in the United States of America and around the world, but to us in particular, he's saying these things. You are my people. Live like it. You have received mercy. Rest in it. Don't go looking for happiness in other places. Don't go hunting around like Gomer did. Know what you have in God. Rejoice in it and rest in it. God speaks to this generation of Christians. God is going to say in this chapter the many different ways that he has spoken to them. And the other prophets have said very similar things. God speaks through natural disasters. And I reminded us of this last week. There have been three incredible disasters that have come upon the United States of America in the last few years. September 11th, showed us that our military might is not enough to protect us. We cannot protect ourselves from attack. We saw Hurricane Katrina come roaring up through the Gulf of Mexico and destroy how many lives? Hundreds of thousands of lives, if not millions of lives, unsettled at the very least. And we were helpless against the onslaught of nature. And then we saw this year unleashed a financial collapse that started here and has gone around the world. We need to pay attention, America, and American Christians, we need to pay attention. We cannot put our hopes in false gods and in other things that are not able to protect us. The same way that Israel was not able to do that. We cannot think that God is going to deal differently with us than he did with his own people. So let's look at these four accusations. And starting in verse 2 then, ah, such strong words. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. First accusation. Spiritual adultery. God's words to this nation of Israel are strong. He said he's going to expose their shame. They embraced idolatry. They took it to heart. They hugged it. It was what they wanted. God said, I'm going to reveal your shame. He said it's going to result in public humiliation. That's verses 3 and 4. Everyone's going to look at Israel and say, what's happening? The other nations will look at Israel and say, these people used to boast of how they knew God. And look what's happening to them. They are utterly helpless against other nations. They cannot help themselves. There's a public humiliation. I don't know if it's just my imagination, but it seems that we have this epidemic of political and church leaders who are owning up to their moral failings. And our own shame is on display time after time after time. I get tired. I get weary. I don't want to see another news report of some nationally known church leader falling. 
I don't want to hear about another politician falling. It's heartbreaking. Our shame is being displayed worldwide. And so is Israel's. Verse 5, he continues, God continues and says, For their mother has played the whore, and she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. God says, I'm going to do something about that. I will hedge her way up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall around her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. And then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. The second accusation that God has against the people of Israel is that they were practical idolaters. They practiced practical idolatry. That is, they were convinced, well, we need these things. I need my wool, I need my flax, we need our food, we need this. I'm going to go to the place where I can get that best. I'm going to go pursue that. And of course, what they meant by that, they were going to pursue these idols that they said to themselves that these other idols brought to them all of these things. And the shamefulness of their wandering heart led them into shameful public behavior. It was immorality on parade. Today in the city of Chicago, there's going to be a parade. It's a parade that calls itself pride, but it demonstrates shame. It's a public display of shame. It is not something that should make us rise up in anger. It should make us fall to our knees in repentance. We have become a people who not only walk away from God, but we parade it in public. We try to get little children from their schools to come and celebrate something they don't understand. We ought not to rise up in anger, but we ought to fall down in repentance. T.S. Eliot wrote a poem called The Hollow Men. This is just a part of it. He says, We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas! Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind on dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. The end of the poem, Eliot summed it up this way. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. God is saying to the people of Israel, beware, beware. Your display of your shame will be seen. Your practical idolatry will fail you. God said he's going to put up obstacles to the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to build a hedge around you. You're going to try to go here to worship this idol because you think this idol makes the ground fertile and you can grow your crops there. And when you get there, you're going to discover you can't do it. I'm going to make you turn everywhere you go. You're going to run into an obstacle until you finally come to your senses and say, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? Why was I running after these false gods that cannot provide anything for us at all?
A third accusation. Verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her grain and wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, and her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the fields shall devour them. God said to the people of Israel, his third accusation was that they were willfully ignorant and it led them to ingratitude. It wasn't that they didn't know that these things came from God. They chose not to know it. They chose not to know these things and they turned their back on God. If I were to sum up verses 9 through 12, I would say this. Israel, the party's over. You've been out there celebrating with all your gods. You've got all the festivals of these gods down. And Baal means Lord. And Baal was celebrated in all kinds of places. Every town had Baal this and Baal that. They had their own gods, their own version of Baal. And so they had all these feasts and celebrations that they were going on. And God said, the party's over, Israel. The party is over. Do not ever, ever fall into the willful ignorance that Israel did, thinking that what I have is because I'm so clever. What I have is because I'm so skilled. What I have is because I'm something. What you have is because God is good. What you have is because God is gracious. And he has given it to you. He has loaned you out of his plenty what you need to live on and to survive. Willful ignorance leads to gratitude. And God will allow circumstances to bring enlightenment to us. You and I can chase after our material things as if we have no need for God. But there are things that bring us up short. There are things that show us where the real source of our supply has been. The loss of a job. A diagnosis of a serious illness. The death of a loved one the unfaithfulness of a spouse, something will come into your life and you will say, what was I thinking? Why was I chasing after all this stuff when it was God alone? When it was always God alone and it has never been anyone but God alone that I should have been chasing. The fourth accusation then against the people of Israel in verses 13 through 15. And God says, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God is saying to the people of Israel, the celebration of these false gods is a shallow way to live. It's shallow living. Instead of celebrating Yahweh, the one God, they celebrated all these Baals. They had a festival every week. There was a festival going on in some town for some aspect of these false gods. Today, I believe that we sacrifice everything in our lives for a new God that we call the God of happiness. 
Americans are consumed with the God of happiness. We have to have happiness. What we mean by that is whatever gives us an emotional high. Whatever makes us feel good for the moment, that's my happiness. And that's what I'm going to chase. Whatever makes me feel good for the moment. Last week I talked about the fact that in our uh, founding documents we have this phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit, although if you read it, it looks like the perfoot, but the pursuit of happiness, right? And when the founders wrote that, they had an idea of happiness that we have abandoned in the last probably 30 years. It stood for centuries, but we've walked away from it. And the pursuit of happiness that they had in mind was not feeling good today. It was not the next emotional high. It was not a thrill. That's not what they meant at all. According to those who lived before us, before what I would say is the baby boom, gen boom generation, my generation, they defined it this way. Happiness is a life well lived, a life of virtue and character, a life that manifests wisdom, kindness, and goodness. That is happiness. That is what the founding fathers had in mind when they talked about the pursuit of happiness. A life of substance. Not a life of thrills. A life of substance. They wrote those words at a time when children more often died than lived after childbirth. They knew that happiness was not to be pursued in the numbers of children or in great prosperity necessarily. They knew that those were shallow things. They knew that what mattered in life is character, substance. Happiness comes from life of virtue and character, a life that manifests wisdom, kindness, and goodness. It's not that highs are bad. It's just that they're insufficient. They don't come up to it. They don't meet the measure. They don't do what we want them to do. Jesus told his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, not his party hat, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? death of Michael Jackson this last week brings that passage into bold relief. What is life lived for? What's the purpose of it? Is it the accumulation of more stuff, fame, that eludes you? Or is it that there's a life of virtue and character to be well lived? God said to Israel, I'm going to woo you back. You've been utterly unfaithful to me, but I'm going to love you back. I'm, I'm going to bring you back to myself by loving you intensely. And the goodness of God will overwhelm her, he said. The result will be that God is being prophetic here. Israel is going to rejoice again. You're in a season of great sadness and grieving because of your unfaithfulness to Yahweh, but I'm going to win you back. I'm determined to get you back. That's what God said. We go down to verse 16 and 
He says, in that day, in that day, the day that you are won back to me, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal or my Lord. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they will be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. What a picture God paints for these people who are beaten down. They are living in a season of great instability. Assyria, the nation, raids Israel constantly during this period of time. There is no security in their lives. They're looking for safety. They want to hear news that is not of another attack. They want to know that God will protect them. God has provoked a jealousy over our spiritual unfaithfulness. God has provoked to jealousy. He doesn't use the word here, but that's what he's describing. He's going to come after them. He's going to pursue them. Does that bother you that God is provoked to jealousy that I say that? Over and over again, God says he defines himself. One of his character traits is that he is a God who is a jealous God. Does that bother you? It bothers some people that God says he's a jealous God. I thought jealousy was a terrible thing. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You will not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Jealousy is a suspicion of a spouse's purity. God is saying to Israel, his bride, I suspect you. I have a suspicion that you are not faithful to me. And he knew that. It wasn't just a suspicion, but it was proven. But what is God jealous of? God is jealous of the relationship he has with his people, both in the Old and New Testaments. He describes himself as a faithful husband and his people as his bride. You know that in Ephesians we saw that God said, You're my bride. You're my bride. And of course there's an expectation of faithfulness in that declaration. God is jealous of the relationship that he has with his people. He doesn't want to share that with anyone else. He doesn't want you to share your heart with anyone else. No other God but him. Some will say, well, listen, jealousy is sin. Well, yes. When we're jealous... You see, jealousy is like anger and joy, sadness, or other emotions of personality. Sinfulness has twisted all of our ability to express our emotions rightfully, and uh, we see anger turning into wrath and, and violence. And these are because our motives are not pure. Our anger is self-serving. And our jealousy is vengeful. I'm jealous, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get him for that or someone. The idea that God can be jealous has caused some people to walk away from a biblical picture of God's character. As if we are the judges of God. Uh, Pastor Erwin Lutzer wrote a critique and the, and the booklet is called Oprah, Miracles, and the New Earth. 
And in it, he, he writes this. Oprah Winfrey describes herself as a, quote, free-thinking, unquote, Christian who turned against the traditional teachings of Christianity when she heard her pastor say, God is a jealous God. She could not accept that, she says, because she, she always thought God was a God of love. And this set her, sent her on a pursuit of a quest into spirituality to find the true essence of the Christian faith, an essence that is shared by all religions. No element of God's character is less than holy and pure. When God is jealous, it is not a sinful jealousy. There is such thing as a righteous jealousy in the hands of God. God's jealousy comes from his broken heart and our hardness and our foolishness and our whorish chasing after everything but him. God's jealousy is pure and he doesn't need Oprah's approval. We need to listen to what God says, how he describes himself. We need to examine our hearts and our lives in the light of the word of God. And we need to say to ourselves and ask ourselves, am I like Israel? Am I pursuing these other gods? Is that who I am? Now God says that he's going to restore the people of Israel to himself. They will return to him and they will be beloved, be beloved once again. It's the hope of re, uh, restoration. It's the romance that returns with renewed vows. And in the mind of God, he will put it away as if it had never happened. He talks about, in verse 15, the valley of Achor, a door of hope. In the beginning, we said that when God told Hosea to name his son Jezreel, it was a dagger in the heart of the people of Israel because there was a place of national pain connected with that name. And now here's this Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor is a place where another event took place in the history of Israel that grabbed their attention when he used that phrase, the Valley of Achor. You know that in the book of Joshua, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, the people of Israel were brought up to the promised land. They were on the shores of the Jordan, and God said, get ready, you're going in. Get ready. Tell the priests to put the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. When they walk into the water with that, the water's going to part, and the people of Israel will cross the dry ground into the promised land. And as soon as they got into the promised land, you know what they found? There was opposition. There was difficulty. There was this fortified city called Jericho. And you know the story, you heard it in Sunday school, or your children have heard it, about the, the battle of Jericho. And Joshua was told by God, you're going to fight this battle, but you're not going to use weapons. You're going to do it the way I tell you to fight this battle. He says, I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times, then you're going to blow the trumpets and the walls are going to fall down. And that's exactly what happened. This fortified city caved in before the onslaught of God's word. But God had given clear instructions to the people of Israel. When you take the city, do not take anything that's in it. Don't take the gold or the silver or the fancy clothes that you find there. Don't turn your heart after those things. Leave them alone. Don't touch them. The battle of Jericho was a piece of cake. God did all the fighting. They went home celebrating and singing and dancing around the campfires at night. There was just rejoicing everywhere. And then they came up and they realized there's another little town called Ai. Not only was it a little town, it had a little name. Two letters. Ai. And they said, well, we can take that. We took this big city of Jericho. We can take the little city. And they said, don't even bring out the whole army. We'll just go after them. 
And they went after Ai, and going after Ai, the people of Ai came out and defeated the people of Israel. What happened? We had this great victory. We didn't even raise a weapon. Now we go out and in battle array and we lose. And they fell on their face before God. They fell down before God. And I, I need to go back now to Joshua 7 with this. Maybe you want to turn with me briefly. Joshua 7. The people are defeated. It says in verse 6 of Joshua 7, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Listen to what God says to Joshua. God says to Joshua, get up. Why are you falling on your face? What are you doing praying down there, Joshua? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. For they have taken some of those devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own things. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have been devo- they, those things have been devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up! The King James Version says, There's sin in the camp, Joshua. Go deal with it. You've got sin to deal with. Don't be sitting here praying and praying. You need to find out what's going on in your own congregation. You need to find out what's going on in your own body. There's sin in the camp. And they went and you know the story, how they came and they, by lot driven by God, they came to a man named Achan. And Achan confessed. He had stolen some of the silver. He had taken fancy clothes that he found there and he buried them in his tent and Joshua said go see if it's true and they went to his tent and they found it and brought it back an entire nation brought to its knees by one man's sin one man's unfaithfulness and so God said don't be here praying to me get up and deal with this and so they dealt with it you know the story that Joshua called the people of Israel together Achan was put to death for his rebellion against God. The place where that happened, the death of Achan took place, is the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. Whenever the people of Israel heard the valley of Achor, they thought of trouble that came about because of sin in the body of believers in their congregation, in their nation. Now God says he's going to restore I just love the way the prophets record the heart of God. God speaks harsh words, and then he says, I'm going to win you back. I'm going to love you again. God is going to restore them. You will be beloved again, and the valley of trouble will be forgotten. I will love you again. All the redeemed then are named. And he says that uh, I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Paul picked up this, or Peter picked up this theme 
Well, let me back it up here so the slides are in the right order. Uh, in Romans, Paul, talking about the people of Israel, said, he indeed said, it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. He's applying that to us. We were not his people. And he said, I'm going to call you my people. He said, I'm going to call you in. Peter wrote about it. He says, once you, us, the Gentiles, were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're far from God today, if you've been wandering after some God hoping that it's going to give you happiness and contentment, you need to return to God. He wants to bring you back. He says in verse three, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, The Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go and love, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Cakes of raisins. Isn't that a little thing? They love these little stupid cakes. Even though they're so stupid that they go after these little sweet things. It's like Hostess Twinkies. That's what I live my life for, Hostess Twinkies. You know, What is that? What kind of way is that to live a life, God is saying? Even though you've done that, I want to love you. I want to love you back. So I'm going to bring you back. She had so cheapened herself, Gomer, again, this is back in reality. She had so cheapened herself that she wasn't even worth the price of a slave in that day. Just a little grain and some coins. And Hosea went and bought his wife back. And he said to Gomer, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. And you will never wander from me again. What a heart Hosea had to have. A life of sin does to us what it does, what it did to Israel. We chase foolish things instead of living for the living God. And I believe that the things happening in our nation today should wake us up. We need to look and say, where is my hope? Where is my security? It is not in these things. It is not in these other gods. It's in the Lord only. If your heart has wandered somewhere else, come back. If you're out there chasing all kinds of money and fun and thrills, come back. Come back to Jesus. He loves you. He'll never be unfaithful to you. And he wants to restore you. He wants to give you the joy that you once knew when you first came to him. We're going to sing a closing song at this time. And then I'm going to come.